My name is Austin Rhodes. I get to serve with the student ministry here, just one of the many staff members. Uh, and I'm so thankful that y'all are getting to see the rest of the student staff today as well. I know uh, most days we're over in the other buildings, so you might not see us, but uh, I'm so thankful that you're getting to, to put eyes on, on everybody that's investing into our, our students here at Rock Point. Uh, today we're going to be in John chapter 14. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and feel free to turn there with me. John chapter 14 is our text this morning. There's a phrase that y'all know, uh, you've probably used it before, uh, that deals with a drop in your stomach. And you've probably used or thought about that phrase before, you're having a, a drop in your stomach. And, and sometimes when we have a, a drop in our stomach, it's from excitement. It's a, it's a joyous thing. We enjoy a drop in our stomach like on a roller coaster. All right, when you when you crest that that first big ridge and you're you're rushing down, you feel a drop in your stomach and it's it's excitement, it's adrenaline, it's it's rushing. I remember uh, the first time I actually enjoyed a roller coaster was at Carowinds. Uh, it's an amusement park on the border of North Carolina and South Carolina, uh, in the area where I grew up, and it was uh, a big roller coaster called the Intimidator. Yeah, the Intimidator. Uh, sounds intimidating uh, until you know why it's called the Intimidator. So uh, we are so white trash in that part of the country that the Intimidator is a tribute to Dale Earnhardt, the NASCAR driver. Uh, and so it's just like this roller coaster is completely themed around Dale Earnhardt. But again, like I, I remember jumping on this uh, first time, you know, going down and enjoying the excitement of a, a drop in my stomach. However, most of the time when we talk about having a drop in our stomach, it's not the joy, it's not the excitement, it's not the adrenaline. Most of the time when we say I've, I feel a drop in my stomach, it's, it's more rooted in distress or despair or disappointment or regret. We say we have a drop in our stomach at times when maybe we've said words in private that then make it public and then we have to deal with the aftermath of the, the words that have gotten out and what we've said. And our stomach drops. We feel like kind of a wrench inside. We have a drop in our stomach when we have a, a blow up with our spouse and it's just this massive fight and whatever, it's either what caused it or the fight itself or even just the aftermath from it. And you just, you feel this, this pit inside. Sometimes a drop in your stomach happens when you get a diagnosis that you were hoping not to hear or not to receive. You get a drop in your stomach when you get the phone call that you were dreading and you were hoping not to hear. And all those things cause us to just have this inner sense of turmoil. Right? It, it troubles us. We're, we're hurting on the inside. And it's in that context that we find ourselves in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, uh, the, the first verses, Jesus talks to the disciples, literally says, let not your hearts be troubled. The disciples are in a, in a spot where they have a, a pit, a drop, a wrenching in their stomachs. And Jesus is speaking into that. And so what's caused these disciples to have a troubled heart, to have a wrench, have turmoil within them? If you recall to last week's message, John, or, uh, Ron looked at John chapter 13. 
In John chapter 13 last week, we looked at how uh, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It was a, a moment of great humility, uh, of service to his disciples. But then what happens right after Jesus washes his disciples' feet is he reveals that Judas is going to betray him. And then uh, after he reveals Jesus is gonna betray him, he gives a new teaching to his disciples. And he says, you know, I, I have this new commandment for you to love one another the way that I have loved you. That's what Jesus tells the disciples. Even in uh, verse 35 of John chapter 13, he says, the way that the world will know you're my disciples is by the way that you love one another. And then immediately following this command to love is when Jesus foretells of Peter's denial. And so we see that the disciples have this, this burden, this troubling heart. First, because they've offended the person who's given them the most. They've offended the one who's offered them and given them the most. They've offended Jesus by taking him serving them and repaying it with betrayal. Of a command of love and repaying it with denial. And so we see that there's this turmoil, this troubling heart. And even beyond that, we see that they're troubled because there's a weight in this moment. Jesus is talking to his disciples about 24 hours before his death. And Jesus has been foretelling of the fact that he's gonna have to go. There's gonna be loss, there's gonna be death, that he is about to die. He hasn't hidden that fact from his disciples. And so in the midst of, of turmoil, in the midst of a troubled heart, in the midst of betrayal and denial and death, Jesus offers these words. John 14, starting in verse one. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself and where I am, you may be also. So as the disciples' hearts are troubled and Jesus gets to speak to a, a, a troubled people, a troubled group, the first thing that he does is he offers encouragement. Jesus offers encouragement to troubled hearts. And Jesus does this in three ways. First, the way that Jesus offers encouragement to a troubled heart is he commands you to be encouraged, right? He, he just commands you to be encouraged. He gives two commands. The first one's a negative command. He says, let not your heart be troubled. He says, don't be troubled. He says, another translation, stop being troubled. Now, uh, some of you have probably gotten similar advice like that in your life, and it's made you so mad. It's made you so angry that you're anxious. And it's like, man, I'm anxious about this. And the response someone gives you is, oh, just don't be anxious about that. That's fine. It's like, oh, thanks. That's helpful. You say, I'm worried. I'm worried about what's going on. And they said, oh, you shouldn't worry about that. Oh, great, I'm gonna stop worrying. That you, you should have told me that earlier. I, I would have known, right? That Jesus is not passing his LPC to become a counselor in this moment. But the, the difference that we see, like we, we get angry at people when they give us this response, but it's different when Jesus speaks. 
right? And Jesus is commanding them, let not your heart be troubled because Jesus has the authority. Jesus has the ability to calm the hearts. Right? The, the same Jesus that calms waves and winds is the, the same Jesus that now is commanding them, let not your hearts be troubled. He has the authority to do it. So he gives a, a negative command, then he gives a, a positive command. He says, okay, don't let your hearts be troubled and then believe in God and believe also in me. The second half of verse one. And so the command is to, to believe, believe in God, believe in him. This idea of believe, it's a personal relational trust. He says, have a personal relational trust in me. And uh, he's saying, yeah, listen, we, we've spent time together. We've walked through life together. We've experienced things together. You've seen my faithfulness over and over and over and over again. And he says, in the midst of your heart being troubled, you can be encouraged. I command you to be encouraged because we know one another. You can trust in me. And so he says, he, he offers encouragement first by commanding it. Second thing that Jesus does to offer encouragement is he says that if he departs from them, then he's gonna return, right? If Jesus leaves, he returns. Picking back up verse two, let's reread that. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. All right, so just in that little, we see go mentioned twice, come again mentioned once. He says, I want you to be encouraged. He's telling the disciples, you can be encouraged because even though I'm about to leave you, I'm also gonna come again. I'm also going to return. And when I return, I'll make all things right and new and good again. So there's hope. You can be encouraged because there is a second coming. You can be encouraged by that. That he's uh, gonna be the same God that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 31, the same God that's written about in Hebrews 13, that our God never leaves us nor forsakes us. He says, you can be encouraged because I am not abandoning you. So he commands encouragement. He says, you can be encouraged because I will return. And then the, the final way that he encourages his disciples, he encourages the troubled hearts. Is, he says he goes to prepare a place for us so then that we have a place to dwell. He prepares a place so you and I have a place to dwell. He's having this conversation with the disciples uh, about entering into the house of God entering into the presence of God, of being in relationship with God. And he says, I have to go and prepare a place for you so that you can be with me. You can reside and rest and, and dwell with me. You know, uh, Jesus is not so much concerned about the infrastructure of the father's house. Uh, he's not dealing with contractors and dates that they never hit or late shipments or anything like this. When we're talking about Jesus, this is the Jesus who speaks things into existence. And so he's not having to go build a house and build on extra rooms. Rather, Jesus says, I have to go prepare a place for you. I have to prepare a way by which you can be in the presence of God. I have to prepare means by which you can enter into God's presence again. He's talking about the cross. The preparation that has to happen is, is the cross. He's lived a perfect life. He dies a death on our behalf. 
that he's buried and he, he rises again and now has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has to go and prepare a way for which you and I can be in the presence of God again. And because he has prepared a place for you, you can dwell in the presence of God. You can have relationship and intimacy with God throughout eternity. And so as he speaks to these troubled hearts, he says, be encouraged. I command you to be encouraged. I'm coming back again. And I have a spot for you to dwell. But then he kind of sets the disciples up a little bit. He, he sets them up for further conversation. We look at verse four. Jesus continues, says, and you know the way to where I'm going. To which Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And throughout scripture, uh, if you've grown up in church, you've heard the phrase of a doubting Thomas. Even if you haven't grown up in church, you, you might've heard the phrase of a doubting Thomas. This is the Thomas we're talking about. Thomas is known for asking blunt, direct questions. And I think Thomas gets a bad rap uh, because I think when Thomas asks these blunt, direct questions, they're not always bad. I don't think they're always coming from a place of doubt. We see it in John chapter 11 and our text this morning, John 14, again in John 20, Thomas asked blunt questions of Jesus. And I think his heart is that he just, he wants to be with Jesus. He wants to know, he wants to understand and he just does it in a blunt way. And what Thomas asks is kind of a recurring theme throughout John of where someone's stuck on the physical world and Jesus is talking about something bigger, something better, something greater. And so Thomas asks, he's like, hey, what are the directions to your father's house? He's asking for a physical address. He's saying, do I go north on 35 or south on 35 to get to the house of the father? Where does he stay? Let me know. And it leads into Jesus to, to give an answer. It's probably the second most famous passage within the book of John. In John 14, verse six, Jesus replies, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus offers encouragement to the troubled hearts. But then he also makes this claim to the troubled hearts. And his claim is that he is salvation. That Jesus is salvation. He's setting up this doctrine, this teaching that, that salvation is found solely and entirely within himself. That nothing apart from the cross gets anyone any closer to dwelling in the house of God. Nothing that you can do in addition to the work of the cross gets you closer to the dwelling place of God. He's saying, I am salvation. I am the way and the truth and the life. And the fact that Jesus is salvation first, I think it is offensively exclusive. It is offensively exclusive. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, you personally should be offended by the fact that Jesus is salvation. Your flesh, your nature, who you are should be offended by this. Because what he's saying is that you are not good enough. Doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you were born in the Bible Belt or the Middle East. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a perfect household or a broken household. There's no demographic 
study or measure that you can put on a person that gets them any closer to the dwelling place of God because you as a person are not good enough. It's offensive, not only to your person, but to your work. He says, it doesn't matter if you're a self-made millionaire, if you are generous or if you're greedy, if you have leisure time or you just serve and volunteer with all of your time. It doesn't matter what you do. You are not any closer apart from the cross or in addition to the cross to get any closer to the dwelling place and the house of God. It is offensive. It should, it should rub you wrong. It should, it should hurt a little bit. Because he's saying you are deficient and insufficient and not good enough. How's that for a pickup line, right? Uh, Yeah, you're not good enough. I think Tom Brady illustrates this really well. He's playing in the Super Bowl tonight. Uh, not the, he, he's, he, he's impressive. Uh, last hour, I said that uh, he was in a sixth Super Bowl because I know he's going for a sixth ring. And some Patriots fan was like, no, it's his 10th. Um, and then the Cowboys fans beat him up after. So you're welcome. Um, but Tom Brady, uh, you know, he, he has everything by, by, on the hour perspective, right? He's, he's, he's going for another Super Bowl tonight. And if you look at him on the outside, he's a generous person. He has foundations set up. He's married to a supermodel. He's a, he is the best quarterback, arguably, of all time. And then in 2005, after he won his third Super Bowl, he was getting interviewed. And I'm like, Tom, you've got everything. You've done everything. You're an awesome person. You're an awesome quarterback. Everything about you is so good. And, his, and they're asking, what's next? And his response was like, I don't know, but there's got to be something more. It's like, even if you're Tom Brady, you're not good enough. It is offensively exclusive to say it's, it's only in Jesus. He is the way and no one gets to the Father except through him. It's nothing that you can do. It offends us to our core if we think about it honestly but it's also alluringly inclusive. The fact that Jesus's salvation is also alluringly inclusive because yes, it is exclusive in the fact that you only get to experience salvation within Jesus. Yet once you are in Jesus, you get to experience so much more. What's included in the cross and a relationship with Jesus is so much more. It allures you, it appeals to you. And we, we see this when he says, not only is he the way, but he's also the truth and the life. He says, I am truth. In him is all truth. You get to know God intimately. You get to experience the truth of who God is in Jesus. It is included within a relationship with him when you know his salvation. You should call us back to the first chapter of John. In John uh, chapter one, verse 14, uh, Jesus says, uh, uh, John's writing about Jesus. And he says that he came and he dwelt among us. And in him, we saw glory. The glory is of the only son of God, full of grace and truth. And in a relationship with Jesus, you get to experience the fullness of God's grace and God's truth. It's included. 
It's alluringly inclusive. It's something that we want. We want, we desire, we want to know God and we find that in Jesus. It's alluringly inclusive because Jesus is the life. Jesus, in him, you get to experience life and life abundant. It's John 10, 10. It says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come to bring you life and life abundant. Again, it calls us back to the first chapter of John as well. John uh, chapter one, verse four. Jesus is the life and that life was the light of men. You get to experience life and a fullness and a richness when you know Jesus. There's an allure, there's an appeal and it's included in that relationship. And you are included in that offering. The the fact that you are here today, that you're hearing my voice, it means that, that, that if you don't know God, that he wants you to know him. He wants you to experience this. He wants you to know what it is to have life and life abundant. He wants you to know what it is to have salvation, to have your, your troubled soul encouraged and saved. As we look at this text and I was prepping this week, Psalm 16 started kind of going through my mind. And in Psalm 16, uh, the the psalmist essentially gives uh, two different options for us in life. Uh, The first option comes up in verse four of Psalm 16. And the writer says that the sorrows of those who chase after other gods will multiply. And I think if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, then your, your soul and your heart is troubled and you're experiencing sorrow because you're chasing after other gods. Yet, even if you do know Jesus and you're here today and you have a troubled heart and a troubled soul, you have the exact same options to pursue and run after other gods. To find hope in the approval of someone else, to find hope and comfort or in riches, or in career. The things that are troubling you, the things that are weighing heavy on you. If you're choosing to pursue other things, if you're running after other gods to satisfy your soul, to calm your troubled heart, it says all that leads to is more sorrow. But then the psalmist gives another option in verse 11. He says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is a fullness of joy and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He says, yes, I know. I know things are weighing heavy. I know your heart is troubled. I know that you're wrenched inside. But I have come to encourage you. I've come to offer you salvation. And in me, you can experience a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And you get that in Jesus, in a relationship with him, in a pursuit of him. 
And so we're gonna transition to a time of worship. And as the, the band comes back up and uh, we start to sing again, I pray that this morning, that if your heart is troubled, that you leave encouraged, and you leave knowing that Jesus is your salvation. And so as we worship, as we sing, I, I hope that you can take this opportunity to reflect, to, to lay down the things that are troubling you, to re repent of the other gods that you are chasing, and then that you have joy and pleasures leaving here today. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. That you are full of grace and full of truth and have shown that to us in Jesus. God, if there's anyone here who has continued to pursue the things of this world and is, is wrapped up in sorrow and doesn't know you, I, I pray that today that we'll have a conversation with someone before leaving to know what it means have salvation in you. And God, for those of us who are believers and yet still have a troubled heart, let's not grow weary in pursuing you. Let us hold fast to your promises that you will never leave and forsake. Let us know that in you, can have all truth, all life, life abundant and forevermore. Let that be our encouragement. Let that be our hope. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the cross and the fact that you prepared a way for us. And it's in the name of Jesus, we pray.